electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, one big index hitting a painful milestone. Bond yields up again. What should you do with your money now? On the brink of war? Tensions high in the Middle East. Ian Bremmer is here going for broke. Sam Bankman-Fried will take the stand in his fraud trial. We have a preview. Morgan Stanley naming a new CEO. What comes next for the megabank and its investors? We'll have the breaking developments. The EV electric slide accelerating while a landmark partnership is eating the dust. Plus, who said bipartisanship is gone? How Congress may bring relief to California wildfire victims in an unprecedented manner. And on the ground in San Francisco, what we found out in our trip to the troubled city, some of the answers and video may surprise you. All that and more across the hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. A big hour ahead, and we begin tonight with some developments on Facebook's Meta. CEO Mark Zuckerberg saying the magic words that AI, artificial intelligence, will be Meta's biggest investment area this year. But Meta shares, they are down right now after initially popping. This all comes as Meta faces an historic lawsuit over kids and teen safety, one that we told you about and talked about last night. But let's dive into the numbers and, more importantly, what Zuck said on the call for this very important stock, Julia Borston on set with us here in New Jersey. I feel like we're swapping coast, but it's great to have you here. It's great to be here, Brian. Macro takeaways from Meta. Well, first I have to say, Mark Zuckerberg did not address the state's attorney general lawsuit. What is weighing on the stock, though, is not that lawsuit, but a comment from CFO Susan Lee on the call about advertising volatility at the start of the fourth quarter, which she said correlated with the Israel-Hamas war starting, saying that that is why they widened the guidance range for Q4, and they have historically seen broader demand softness follow other conflicts in the past. Now, on the earnings call, CEO Mark Zuckerberg focusing on the company's accelerating growth. Meta reporting 23% revenue growth in the quarter, ahead of expectations and up from 11% revenue growth in the prior quarter. Earnings also beat expectations and the company lowered its expense outlook. Take a listen. We are planning to continue focusing on operating efficiently going forward, uh, both because it creates a more disciplined and lean culture um, and also because it provides stability to see our long-term initiatives through uh, in a very volatile world. Now, in, in terms of, of investment priorities, AI will be our biggest investment area in, in 2024. One area where in expenses will grow is investment in AI, as well as Meta's Reality Labs division. That's a division that does augmented and virtual reality initiatives. That division are already ratcheting up 
$37.5 billion in losses since they started breaking it out. Now, Zuckerberg did stress the overall importance of AI, saying that AI advances are already driving improvements in Meta's business performance and will have an even greater impact going forward. All right, I'm a little bit confused about Meta because Facebook was Facebook, then they became, they changed their name, and it was all about the metaverse. Now it's all about, not all about, but the headline, about artificial intelligence. Is AI part of the metaverse, or is it something separate from the metaverse? AI is part of everything. Okay. AI is part of advertising. It's part of the metaverse. They have these new, uh, these Ray-Ban glasses that you can talk to an AI, and I just did a great demo of these, but you can talk to an AI assistant, the meta AI assistant, through your Ray-Ban glasses. So they're really integrating AI into everything now. Okay. And I think that the metaverse vision that we first learned from, from the company and from Mark Zuckerberg was all about avatars in the metaverse. Now what they're saying is that it's more about mixed reality and using some of these devices like the augmented, augmented reality quest headset mm. or these Ray-Ban glasses, which will give you an AI assistant in your ear, using all of that in a way that integrates AI and puts AI at the center. Okay, of it. so they're different things. So the augmented reality, if we have the video, we'll rerun it. I'm sure we have it. It's those like, you know, you put on the goggles and you walk through what looks like those Lego or Playmobil-looking scenes and hope to encounter people or live by but land. that's virtual reality. Yeah, that's, now, augmented okay. reality is you put on, and I, and I just did this demo last week. I wish we had the, the video ready, but I put on the headset, and I'm in my office, and I can see my hands, and I can even pull up a screen where I could read an article on CNBC.com or watch But there's video. nothing actually in front of you. But there's nothing actually in front of me, but it looks like there's a big screen in front of me. So they expect that to be useful for some people in enterprise situations. Maybe if you're, you're trying to do collaborative but, but with the part. with the gla- the Ray Bans, so Ray-Bans. so uh, you know you're here or I'm in San Francisco like I was by the way about six hours ago, and I can say, hey assistant, uh, what what are the three best restaurants right around me? You can ask that, or you can take a photograph, or you could take video with your Ray Ban glasses. So what they're saying, the video that video would have been helpful. Yeah, you could considering been able I got yelled at when I pulled out the phone by certain, some yes, people exactly. did not like to see the phone. Yes, and I know you're going to be showing that video later, but what would that video have looked like if you had taken it through your glasses instead of with a phone? So the idea is that they're integrating AI into all of this, making everything that they do better. That's expensive. They but and separately, you have the the reality labs augmented. A, you know, reality, virtual reality component mm-hmm. that's going to be a separate cost. And I think maybe that'll take a longer time to augmented reality, virtual reality, artificial. And is there any real in the, it's all artificial and augmented, but I guess the advertising revenue is real. There you go. There the you the go. ad revenue is still real. We love it. Julia Borston, love having you on set. Thank you. All right. So Meta's earnings come after big tech stocks took a pretty big beating today. The biggest decliner was Google's alphabet. It had its worst day since the beginning of the pandemic. Listen to this, and this is random but painful. Google's parent company lost more than $150 billion in market cap today. That is its single largest one-day loss in value ever. Now, that drop, along with some other big stocks recently, have now shoved the NASDAQ composite into what's called a correction, meaning the index is now down over 10% from its recent high, It's also hitting the lowest level since May of this year. But since many are calling for an end-of-year rally to stocks, and if you believe that, what should you be doing right now? Well, thankfully, we've got some expert advice for you. Joining us, Chief Investment Strategist at iCapital, that is Anastasia Amoroso, and Managing Partner at Evans May Wealth Management, 
Elizabeth Evans, Anastasia. Elizabeth, thank you both for joining us. Elizabeth, okay, tough run, couple weeks. Again, doth not a market make, but when you hear the word correction, certain things are moving down a little bit more. What is your best advice to our viewers and your clients right now? Well, good evening, Brian. I think um, there is a tremendous, uh, a, a lot of uncertainty in, in the short term. So we've been very focused um, on the S&P 500 at this 4,200 level. We saw the market break through that today. We're seeing volatility pick up. Um, we've seen the VIX, uh, the volatility index spike to the upside. And I think you could see the VIX hit 25 to 30 before you really see a market bottom. We saw 30 in, in March of this year. So from a an investment standpoint, we're telling clients to position portfolios for a higher for longer environment, knowing that we don't have certainty as to the definition of higher mm-hmm. or longer. Well, Anastasia, I know that... Uh... You've called this a make or break week for the markets today. Kind of looked like something broke. Yes, the market certainly looked broken this uh, today, and I think Google had a lot to do with it. And what I mean by broken, of course, I do mean that breaking below uh, the 200-day moving average. But it's more than that, Brian. You know, I think if I look at the market technicals today, we're trading now below 200-day moving average on the S&P. We're sort of in this limbo uh, between the 100 and 200-day moving average on the NASDAQ. And, you know, what's really concerning to me from a technical perspective is over the last three months, I would say, we had this pattern of lower lows and lower highs. And that is a downtrend, which is very different from what we saw earlier in the year. So when you start seeing things like that, you know, as much as you want to call for a bounce back and, you know, bounce back from oversold conditions, I think things are a little bit different this time. And, you know, yes, maybe the fundamentals of the revenue business for Google were fine. Maybe meta fundamentals are great and there's some welcome news for investors. But I think this is a market that is being driven by two things right now which is technicals, as we discussed, they don't look good, but also is driven by yields. And the fact that the 10-year Treasury continues to move higher or yields across the curve continue to move higher, you know, up 13 basis points. We didn't have a good uh, five-year auction mm-hmm. today. That is very, very concerning. And I actually think, Brian, that, you know, the market, especially the Treasury market, is sort of screaming for the Fed to do something. Uh, to, to stop this and what that something likely has to be is some sort of adjustment to QT. But I just worry that we're well away from that. And mm-hmm. until the Fed does something, until we see a pivot, it's just too early to say, let's go all risk on uh, on this pullback. Yeah, I, I did not have quantitative tightening QT on my bingo card for last call tonight. Um, Elizabeth, would you agree with what Anastasia said. And also, again, practical advice. Am I selling stocks now? If so, which ones? Am I buying others? Am I just keeping my money in a 5% sort of tax-free muni bond or money market fund? Yeah, I think I think all of her points are spot on. And I think, Brian, it depends on what your time horizon is. So if you have cash needs in the next 12 months and you can clip five and a quarter on a money market fund, that you know, that's a real return. If you're a, a boomer that's looking to lock in income, we're seeing, especially if you're in a high tax bracket, we're seeing uh, after tax equivalent yields on munis eight percent, which is which is uh, nothing to scoff at. I think for long-term investors, the equity markets uh, will will reward them over time. I think you can, I think, for example, the Alphabet, I think 9.5% 
uh, a sell-off today mm -hmm. when they beat on both top and bottom line. L let's not forget that cloud only makes up 11% of their revenue, 1% of their operating income. So I think you can use the volatility, yeah. especially as we trade with the 5% the five, 5 treasury, you can use that volatility to buy companies that you want to own for the okay. long term. Guys, we got to cut it just a little bit short. Got some breaking news, we think, on Ford and the UAW potentially. So I'm going to cut you guys loose, Anastasia, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. We'll get you back on soon. We're going to get to that news hopefully in a few minutes. In the meantime, here's what happened to your money today. The biggest winner of the day, waste management. You saw the CEO on with Jim and Mad Money, the stock up 6%. The biggest decliner, yeah, was the aforementioned Alphabet, the parent company of Google. You know, cloud revenues, short of expectations. But here's a bonus stat for you. As bad as technology has been, what we just talked about, look at that. Small cap stocks are saying, hold my beer. The small cap S&P 600 is now 18% from its high of the year. Another 2% drop. And small caps are in a bear market, down 20% from their high. Remember, small caps are the stocks and the companies that best represent the domestic American economy because nearly all of these companies get pretty much all of their sales from right here in the U.S. of A. So small caps, maybe kind of a crystal ball on what the market thinks about the domestic American economy, not the super gigantic international companies. Let's take a quick look at futures, things, things may, may be shaping up for tomorrow because you got the Meta stock down, Google as well, and NASDAQ futures indicating a decline of maybe three quarters of 1% at the open. All right, we have got a lot more to do on this busy Wednesday. And up next, hold on to your hats or maybe your hair. Sam Bankman-Fried will take the stand in his fraud trial. And FTX victim Anthony Scaramucci here with a preview. Plus, breaking developments on Morgan Stanley, new CEO. Coming in, we'll tell you who. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the key headlines you need to know about, and we're going to tell you. First up, developing news out of one of Wall Street's biggest banks, one of, heck, the world's biggest banks. Morgan Stanley making a big change at the top, a new CEO on the way. Leslie Picker is here, and her name is partly a clue to the name of the new CEO. <laughs> 
Pure, co pure coincidence, uh, no relation here, Brian, but uh, Morgan Stanley announcing Ted Pick as its newest CEO, capping James Gorman's 14-year tenure in the seat. The move is effective January 1st, at which time Gorman will become executive chairman. Pick will also join Morgan Stanley's board. Pick was one of three contenders for the role, a succession race that kicked off at least publicly during the firm's annual meeting in May. Pick's co-president, Andy Saperstein, will become head of wealth and investment management, and Dan Simkowitz will assume Pick's role of co-president and head of institutional securities. The selection of Pick was a unanimous one. The lead director said currently Pick oversees investment banking, equities, fixed income, capital markets, and research. Prior to that, he was global head of sales and trading and credited with orchestrating a turnaround in the firm's fixed income division. In the release, Gorman said, quote, I have worked side by side with Ted since the financial crisis and have experienced firsthand his values, intellect, passion, and commitment to our people and our clients. He is battle-tested, understands complex risk, and works very effectively, not just in the U.S., but around the globe. In short, he is an outstanding executive and leader. I'm told by a source familiar with the matter that the firm, uh, despite the change in leader, the strategy will stay the same. And I'll be sitting down to get into that, those details and more with both Pick and Gorman in a first on CNBC interview during the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Hour tomorrow, Brian. That is going to be a big one, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific. We will look forward to it. Leslie Picker, thank you very much. All right, another major story. It is official. Sam Bankman-Fried will be testifying in his defense at his own fraud trial. He's expected to take the stand as early as tomorrow morning. Let's talk about what we might expect from the rather enigmatic FTX founder, CNBC's Mackenzie Segalos, has been covering the trial closely and joining us now. It seems like, Mac, and I know you're not an attorney, but I'm sure you're talking to them, that this could be a bit of a risky move. Yeah, Sam Bankman-Fried taking the stand is widely considered to be a major gamble for the defense. It gives him the chance to put his own narrative out there on what led to the implosion of his crypto empire, try to counter some of those accusations of fraud and money laundering. But it also offers federal prosecutors a chance to cross-examine him. And the government has a very strong case here. In the last three weeks of trial, We've heard from multiple members of the C-suite at FTX and Alameda Research, people who were also, up until very recently, Sam's closest confidants. And they're not just pointing the finger of blame at Sam. They're also pleading guilty to multiple charges themselves, plus which there's a plethora of written evidence to back up what they are saying. Things like signal chats and internal documents that appear to show that Sam was the one behind the scenes really orchestrating the spending of FTX customer money. I did speak to a former federal prosecutor and trial attorney who makes the point that given how solid the prosecution's case is, Sam actually didn't even have much of a choice here. The defense, according to him, is losing badly, so a coherent explanation from Sam might actually help him with the jury. But ultimately, it is a risky decision, and the entire case is coming down to his testimony. And if a jury doesn't believe him, he's done, Brian. That's what I'm hearing, at least. Yeah, and uh, listening to the Michael Lewis book, Going infinite on it, if, if a quarter of that stuff is accurate in the book, and of course with Lewis it probably is, they got some work to do. Mackenzie Segalos, thank you very much. Great book, by the way. All right, let's bring in somebody who worked closely with Sam Bankman-Fried, Anthony Scaramucci, also the founder of Skybridge Capital, and I should note, a graduate of Harvard Law School. So, I mean, as, if you were Bankman-Fried's attorney, I know suspend reality, Anthony, but knowing him as well as you do, would you put him on the stand? Well, first of all, the only thing I learned in law school was don't be a lawyer, Brian. It so makes two of us, my man. <laughs> yeah, so thank God I'm not his attorney. But, you know, people of my vintage that grew up in the Northeast remember Action Park. 
and there was a documentary called Class Action Park. But Sam is about to go down the alpine slide at Action Park without a break, and so he's going to get skinned alive. There's no way to escape. He's going to think he's going to outfox the prosecutors, but they're very, very well experienced with this stuff. And they're going to point out all the contradictions and they're going to prove the criminal intent with him on the stand. So this is only going to add years to his sentence. But the good news for all of us, though, is that this Sam Bankman-Fried nightmare will end in the next couple of weeks. And then the industry, hopefully you'll invite me on to combat the disinformation that's in the industry. As you know, people... Senator Elizabeth Warren are going after the industry, saying that uh, crypto and Bitcoin is being used for Hamas, which is clearly not true. Uh, and you've got guys like Mike Morell had proven that Bitcoin is probably one of the most transparent things in the world. And so what's yeah. happening now is Sam is causing these problems for the industry. And hopefully that will abate. But this is a way longer sentence for Sam as a result of this strategy. Well, so I said- wouldn't be... I wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, why is he going on? Let's dive a little more into that. And again, I'm, you know him. You've met him many times, okay? I'm reading a book about him, and, and I'm about a third of the way through. Again, excellent book. And the one takeaway that I've got, and if this is wrong, say it, but the one takeaway that I've got is that we're, we're watching him now on screen. He's kind of this frumpy dude with the cargo shorts, and he wears the same shirt every day. And, like, I'm kind of this just quiet genius. What I've gotten from Lewis's book is that he is arrogant, that he believed he was or is smarter than pretty much everybody else in the room all the time. And if that is the case, it might explain why maybe he's pushing himself to go on the stand. So it's interesting. So, you know, I've read the whole book. I don't want to blow the back of the book if you're only a third of the way through it. But but here's the thing I would say to you. Uh, I don't think Michael thought he was arrogant uh, when you're showing those pictures of me and Sam at Crypto Bahamas. Uh, and I met with Michael there. I don't think he thought uh, Sam was arrogant then. You see, what, what's happening now is there's a whole revision of history on Sam. If we go back a year ago, this was a congenial nerd who was uh, going to give all of his money away through effective altruism. What we learned from his co-conspirators is that there was mendacity underneath all of that. And what we learned is there was malevolence. And so... What I don't understand about Michael Lewis, I'd love to ask him this question, because when you get to the end of the book, if you get Michael on, just ask him, hey, you know, explain how four other people have pleaded guilty uh, and you're sitting here uncertain whether or not Sam is guilty or not. You know, he tries to be objective in the book, but only sort of, uh, because at the end of the day, Michael would have never written the book if he thought Sam was the supreme felon that many of us feel. So, so, you know, we're we're all sitting here perplexed by Sam, uh, and I hear the arrogance today, but I didn't feel that arrogance a year ago. And I'm telling you, I took him to some of the heads of state. You know, I'm I'm obviously embarrassed by that, uh, that I did that, because I didn't see the malevolence of Sam. What I saw was a smart guy who was well-intended. Now, we can rewrite history and protect we, we, of course, everybody saw. And I said this to you on, on, on the last time I was on your show. Some woman told me, oh, I knew he was a fraud. I said, but you had an account there. If you knew he was a fraud, why would you have an account there? And the answer is, well, obviously, you didn't know he was a fraud. And, of course, we're going to revise history and everyone's going to pretend now that they knew. And I get text messages from people. Oh, of course, I knew 
Nobody knew. He was on the cover of Forbes and Fortune for a reason. Yeah. He was the good fraudster, Brian. And, and so he's going to get nailed here going on, on the stand. It's a very bad move for him. Uh, going to trial was a very bad move for him, by the way. I'm surprised his parents let him do that. Well, um, I think, but, you know, and, and, you know, and we're, we're going to let you go, but I think for the book, and again, you know, it wasn't like a cocky arrogance. It's kind of, maybe I described it wrong, like I'm better than everybody else in the room, but it was more like that quiet, I can smart, solve yeah. all the problems, other people can't do it, I can do this, they yes, can't do he it. Yes, he may have thought he was smarter than guys like you and me. Yeah. And sometimes when you, hey, listen, when you're that smart, though, it's not good. You know, you go over the line and you, and you do nefarious things. He thought he yeah. was going to take that money. And he was so smart he was going to outtrade the market and put the money back and end up as a half a trillionaire. Uh, it never work works like that. Rule, rule number one, don't steal anybody's money. Rule number two, go back to rule number one, don't steal anybody's money. Okay, you just don't do we'll that in there. our industry. That's, so, that's, I think that's a good anyway. rule. And a good rule one and two. Anthony, thank you. Uh, we got big breaking developments involving the UAW and Ford. Phil LeBeau up with the breaking news next. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, I got some breaking news on the UAW strike and Ford Philabo joining us now by phone. Phil. Brian, we believe that we have a tentative agreement between Ford and the UAW on a contract that will span over the next four and a half years. There has been no official confirmation from either Ford or from the UAW, though I believe we're probably going to hear something from the UAW perhaps within the next hour. Uh, and usually the way this is done under Sean Fain's administration of the UAW since he became president and started uh, these negotiations, it probably will be done on Facebook. In fact, there are a number of people uh, already online saying they've heard that there's going to be a Facebook announcement uh, shortly from the UAW. But this is important, Brian, because what this begins now is the process of first the leadership of the local unions of the UAW from, for Ford will review the tentative agreement then the rank and file will ultimately vote. And this doesn't happen overnight. It's going to likely take several days. Um, and what they're looking at is a contract with a 25% raise, cost of living adjustments that would bring it up over 30% over the life of the contract, uh, investments in the retirement benefits, a lot of things that the UAW rank and file were fighting for, including a, a major reduction in how quickly New hires move up to higher pay tier, uh, pay status, uh, reduction of the number of pay tiers. That was a huge issue uh, for the UAW and for Ford. So the question now is, how much does Ford say about this when the company reports earnings after the bell tomorrow? We're in a quiet period, so I wouldn't be surprised if they take the approach of, mm-hmm. we're not going to say anything. Uh, also, I, I, look, I think they know the UAW got their attention calling out the two largest truck plants, aside from the Kentucky truck plant, on Monday at Stellantis and on Tuesday at General Motors. I think Ford was looking at this saying, we don't want to have another one of our truck plants go down. And if they take down Dearborn and the F-150, it, 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 that would be just a, 
a gut punch and a half for Ford. So what you have now is perhaps if this deal gets locked in by the rank and file, yeah. then perhaps what you're looking at is over the next couple of weeks, either General Motors and Stellantis is probably next. And they'll, they'll see what the, what the agreement is between Ford and the UAW. They already know that 25% is what the UAW wants. We reported that yesterday. Um, and, and I think that's likely where you're going to see them come in with the final contract. Okay. It's just a matter of how quickly they lock it in. Got a lot of questions here, not a lot of time. So 25% of that's done. I know the UAW originally started at 40, so 25 would be maybe where they land. But it's, to your point, front-loaded. I think I read 11%, whatever, in the first year. And, that 20... and you get cost of living over the course of the contract, which puts it up over 30%. Okay, so you add in the COLA, cost of living adjustment. It goes over 30 This would only be Ford, to your point. If they get a deal done, it would only be Ford, not GM and Stellantis. If they do get a deal done, could they start running that Kentucky plant tomorrow? No. They've got to get it voted and ratified by the rank and file. That's going to take some time. Uh, is it possible that you see the Kentucky truck plant up and running, let's say, by Monday or Tuesday? Well, they'd really have to move quickly in terms of the rank and file voting. Uh, they're not going to drag their feet. Uh, and it's not like the UAW is going to sit there and say, well, you know what, we're going to take our time on the vote here. Um, but it does take time. You've got 57,000 members. You just can't snap your fingers and have it yeah. done overnight. Because they, they, the, the union, I mean, they're, they're working for $500 strike pay a week. So the workers want a deal. But as soon as they get a deal, I assume, Phil, they're going to want to go back to work as soon as possible. Absolutely. Because they're going to want their, their, their full pay. If Absolutely. We get, it, again, we don't know. But if we do get a deal and the union ratifies it, that's got to really ratchet up the pressure on GM and Stellantis. Do we know where they may be in the process? Well, we know publicly they were at 23%. And we do know that, that in the negotiations, the UAW has said 25%. But, Brian, we're at a stage right now where the pool of money, if you want to just put it that way, it's generally been established. Now the question becomes, what are the percentages in different areas, whether it's retirement benefits, whether it's COLA, whether it's the overall wage increase? That's where we are right now. It's a matter of locking those in where both sides can agree to it. 25% has long been what a lot of people thought they, the settlement would come to. That's the case at Ford. Don't be surprised if it's, it's almost identical at GM mm -hmm. and uh, Stellantis as well. Wow, seems like they might be getting close. This could be a big deal, literally and figuratively. Huge Phil, deal. Yeah, huge. Uh, Phil, thank you very much. Breaking news there with UAW and Ford potentially. All right, joining us now with reaction is Tom Maoli. He is the owner of Celebrity Motor Cars, based in New Jersey and New York. They have a lot of dealerships, including a Ford dealership. If we yes. get a deal, Tom, if we get a deal, Tom, uh, I assume that's good news for you and your customers. Yeah, listen, you know, this had to come to an end. You, can, you can't continue to run a strike and, you know, and shut down these plans. You know, ultimately, I think it's good. You know, I think 25% is a big number. And I think, you know, it's, it's you know, it, it remains to be seen how it's going to uh, unravel and, and play into Ford's earnings. But, you know, listen, at the end of the day, people have to get back to work. We have to keep transportation going. People need cars. They have to get their cars fixed. They need parts. You got to keep the supply chain going. And I think it was, you know, listen, I, I, you know, th this is part of the whole bargaining agreement. You know, at the end of the day, you got to make, you have to, come to a compromise and I'm, you know, I'm happy they did. And I think that the unions, you know, gave up something, you know, they wanted this 32 hour work week and get paid for 40. And they started this whole thing with a 40% pay increase. And I think they made, they made, uh, you know, uh, um, 
they gave up a lot and so did Ford. You know, I think Ford probably would run a 15%, 17% increase and they went to 25 and I think this ultimately had to happen. But at the end of the day, I have to tell you, it's the consumer that ultimately is going to, you know, take bite the bullet because, you know, some of these costs are going to have to get passed on to the consumer and it's just going to raise the prices of cars. And, you know, it, it just, it is with, you know, the way our economy works. Yeah, and you know, listen again. I've been poking around, and you look at there's yeah. some the F one fifty, you know, you know, yeah. King Ranches and Limiteds that they yeah. can go over eighty thousand dollars. But yet, Tom, you yeah. know, you're the dealer. Customers so far don't seem to care. Car sales, tell me if I'm wrong, no. have been have been pretty hot, even at higher rates. No. I see a lot of seventy five thousand dollar pickup trucks with thirty day tags driving around New Jersey. Agreed. You're right on the money. You're, you know, you're, you're, you hit the bullseye. The customers don't seem to care. You know, the, the economy is robust. People are making money. And this is it's become the new norm. This is what it costs to buy a car. And people need transportation. They need to get their families, to, you know, their kids to school. They need to get to work. Um, and, you know, this is this is has become the new norm and customers are used to it. But, you know, listen, I'm glad that, we, you know, people are back to work. They're going to be able to feed their families. You know, the production is going to start moving. Customers are going to be able to come in and buy cars. And, you you know, listen, yeah, when you talk about supply and demand, now the supply will pick up and hopefully the demand is there, but hopefully the prices will come down and maybe mm-hmm. can level out a little bit because there'll be more supply. And this, listen, this is good for the, the economy and the consumer and, and for everyone. And it had to happen. It had to come to an end. And, you know, I, I think, I think it, you know, while no one ever, uh, you know, uh, is satisfied with the results of these things, I think, yeah. you know, it's going to there you go. Tom Maley, maybe some good news for the UAW, some good news for Ford, maybe some good news for you. And we'll see if the consumer will absorb it. Tom Maley, Celebrity Motorcars. Thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate it. Great. All right. So there's some more tomorrow's news tonight. It's a double dose of TNT. There you go. Shares of Big Blue in the green after a big earnings beat. IBM had a nice pop in software sales. And just like Meta, pretty much everybody else the attention on IBM's call was around two letters, A-I. In fact, according to our count, IBM CEO and executives mentioned artificial intelligence a cool 45 times on the call. Christina Partsonevelos joining us now. Uh, is IBM a, a touch late to the A-I party? I'm going to say... If we're talking about the user, a skosh, the user interface, maybe, but they've been a major AI player for decades with their deep blue system back in 1997. And then Watson, the platform many famously watched compete on Jeopardy back in 2011 and actually beat out two of the greatest human contestants. NPR even wrote a story titled, Could Watson Be Coming Next for Our Jobs in Radiology or the Law? And that was 12 years ago. Watson was significant, you're seeing it on your screen, because it showcased the potential for AI and natural language processing. But to your point, Brian, fast forward 12 years now, and IBM really isn't part of that AI crew that include NVIDIA, Google, Microsoft, Meta. And that's because these richer, nimbler, companies like Meta were driving AI research, like, for example, DeepMind, developing their own algorithms. But it's not dead. It's just geared towards B2B businesses that they have customers like Honda and CVS. And so instead of the chat GPT interface mm-hmm. that, you know, us regular people could use on IBM or for IBM, they're hyping up their AI investments that are geared towards B2B. Okay. And the stock is not been great 
B2B has been a D. I think in terms of the stock market, you can use that tomorrow in any coverage. That is, that is free a of one. charge. What's, what are people saying about okay, the stock? B2B is a D, but yet they're saying that it's bringing in hundreds or a couple of hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's actual incremental revenue that's coming from AI versus all the lofty valuations that we have when they're not actually seeing tangible AI dollars. So at least that's a strength for them. To your point about the stock, it's underperforming year to date. Uh-huh. If you look back just to 1999, the stock is only $7 higher than what it was back then. So oh. you're probably thinking, oh my gosh, why am I holding it? Well, IBM is a defensive play because 60% of its revenue is reoccurring. So it's something you want in bad times. And the second point for those that are looking for less risk, the dividend yield is almost 5% which is pretty decent for your portfolio, again, if you're concerned about risk. Christina Partsinevelis on IBM and AI. AIBM. Christina, thank you very much. All right, still ahead. Are we on the brink in the Middle East? New flashpoints raising fears over widening conflict. Ian Bremmer is here next. All right, welcome back. The war in Israel and Gaza raging on as the business world wonders how things may ultimately play out. If you missed them, look at these headlines from today. First up, the Wall Street Journal, which, by the way, has been leading the story so far. Reporting in the weeks leading up to the first attack by Hamas on October 7th, Palestinian fighters received direct training in Iran back in September. This even as the White House claims it still does not have direct evidence of Iran's involvement. This potential revelation comes as Israel is reportedly delaying a ground invasion of Gaza in order for the U.S. to boost its air defenses to protect troops in the area. But if and when a full ground invasion of Gaza does come, will Iran and maybe the U.S. also have to jump into the fight? Joining us now is Eurasia Group President Ian Bremmer. The markets, Ian, have been shockingly sanguine on this news. The fear gauge, the VIX, still under 20. I don't understand why. Because the likelihood that Iran is directly involved in the war is low. Uh, As you said, um, the Iranians are complicit because they do provide funding, they do provide military material, and they also provide training. But not only does the United States believe that they have not orchestrated this attack, the Israelis accept that intelligence as well. That combined with two U.S carrier strike groups in the Eastern Med, and a very clear message from the Americans that if the Iranians get involved in this war, that the Americans will respond directly. This isn't like Russia, Ukraine, where it's a proxy war. The Americans will actually be involved in the fighting. Uh, I think the markets believe correctly, in my view, that the likelihood that the Iranians get directly involved in this war is very low. And that means that the one way that the American economy gets hit which is massive oil is off the market, and then you've got prices going way up, isn't going to happen. Still, this, there's all sorts of stuff that's going to go wrong uh, with, with what we're going to see over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, and I think the question of, quote, directly involved, right, the definition of that can be loose. Directly involved, right. we know if they, if they do something with their Revolutionary Guard, I get it, but if they're training Hamas, if the journal story is right, no reason to believe it hasn't because they've been right yeah. so far, that's yeah. one thing. They like to put mines in the Straits of Hormuz, right, to sort of threaten and terrorize Saudi ships. Maybe they pull oil off the market, although I don't think so because they need the money. Either way, how would you define directly involved, Ian? I was complicit. 
directly involved means that they have been helping Hamas. They support Hamas. There is no evidence at all. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary that they did not orchestrate the attacks. They were not behind the attacks. And the key point here is not whether the Americans accept that. It's whether the Israelis do. And the Israeli war cabinet, which is not the far right coalition, this is the group that's actually running the war that has experience, accepts that. So um, you don't have the Israelis looking for a reason to get the Iranians directly involved in this fight. That's relevant to the markets. As far as the Straits of Hormuz, a couple interesting things, of course, the fact that the Chinese have facilitated a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia that continues to work diplomatically and economically, and that indeed the president of Iran spoke with Mohammed bin Salman literally hours um, after uh, the October 7th attack. That's a pretty strong message that the Iranians are not looking yep. uh, for a fight with the Saudis. Final point, the Chinese have significant material equipment uh, in, in the yeah. region. They've been doing some exercises with Kuwait and Oman, but they've expanded it. Why? Because they want to make sure that they can get their oil out of the region through the straits. So I, I don't think there's actually a significant risk to oil production and throughput right now. There's a lot of risk that this war is about to get a lot worse. A lot more people are going to die, and yeah. the war is likely to expand. That's a different story. Yep. And also, by the way, we've got a war still raging in Ukraine. Has been on the headlines for obvious reasons the last couple of weeks, but no sign of that ending anytime soon as well. Ian Bremer, Eurasia Group, thank you very much for your insight. I was going right. to say that you. no one's asked me. You're going to be the first person. Oh, well. <laughs> there you Ukraine. Yeah. Next time. We'll get you on again soon, Ian. Thank Sounds you very good. much. Be Appreciate good. it. All right. November 8th will be the fifth anniversary of the terrible and deadly fire in Paradise, California and parts of Northern California. 85 people were killed. Over 150,000 acres across the region were burned in that and surrounding fires. And the damage claims for the victims totaled more than $13 billion, bankrupting the utility PG&E. But even with that $13 billion trust, many victims are still waiting to be paid or paid in full. The money may not be enough to cover all the claims. And if that was not bad enough, listen to this. Under current U.S. tax rules, victims will not only owe money on the compensation they receive, but they could also owe taxes on the fees paid to lawyers who worked on the claims. You heard that right. Owing taxes on the billion or maybe two billion in lawyer fees from the trials. That means that including taxes on the actual payout, some people who lost loved ones, their homes, their property, might end up taking home, realistically, 50 or 60 cents on the dollar for their claim. Michelle Gogovac lost her childhood home in Paradise, California, to the fires. We visited her in her home in San Jose yesterday, and she said the likely extra tax hit adds insult to injury. It's like the victims continue to be the victims. They, it's not fair. The fact that you've already lost your home, you've been traumatized by such an event, not of your, any fault of your own, but you continue to be penalized for something that someone else did, which happens to be a major corporation, and they're basically getting off scot-free, is completely wrong. But there could be some relief on the way. A bill in Congress would make sure that fire victims do not have to pay taxes on some of what they get back or the lawyer fees. And this bill has some bipartisan support. 
Congressman Doug LaMalfa represents Paradise, California. He's a Republican, but he's got the support of Mike Thompson, who's a Democrat down there in Napa as well. But Congressman LaMalfa joins us now. I couldn't believe we're, we're, we're in California, Congressman, doing a sort of a mini documentary on utilities and wildfires. And this stuff comes up in our reporting. And when I heard that these people are probably not only not going to get enough to rebuild their homes, but then owe taxes on lawyer fees, I just thought that is insane. Exactly. It's, you know, this has been almost five years, as you said, on November, and we're still trying to get some of the trees cleared off the land. And some people were either underinsured or some folks really on the poor end were uninsured. And so this award that was won from the utility is very important to many, many folks there. And so the concept that IRS believes it should be taxed, and as you mentioned, on top of that, the 30, 33% that's typical for lawyers' fees to win this lawsuit, the, the fire victim will have to pay the tax that the lawyer would uh, gain on income. So it's what? completely unbelievable and outrageous. And so the lady you saw in San Jose there, I, you know, we sympathize. And, and, and it's, it's been long enough. It's been five years. And we need to get this clarified and get this done. So I'm glad we have a bipartisan bill working with Mike Thompson, who had fire victims down in his area, in his district, in that Santa Rosa area in the wine country that, are, that came under a similar circumstance. And, and we have many members around the country that are looking at our bill thinking that this might be helpful for certain disasters that might have a, a, a similar background for them. So we so, have momentum as far as moving the bill forward. We just got to get it through ways and means. M Michelle's grew up in the house and her, and her parents thankfully survived. They were actually at church when the fire occurred, the house was destroyed, but they were one of the lucky ones and they, they had enough insurance. A lot of people didn't have enough or didn't have any. So you're saying not only could there be taxes on the imputed income from what you would have paid the lawyers, but this trust has to pay the lawyers income taxes? That's what the individual would be subject to. If you get you know the 100% of whatever your claim is going to be and you're paying the lawyer 30, 33%, you're still paying income tax on the whole 100%. I don't know why the attorney gets off on that. I'm not sure why every single attorney gets that big of a bite other than a handful that actually did the hard work of winning the lawsuit. Every attorney you have to deal with gets 33, 33%. And so we're, we're trying to change the law on that. H.R. 4970, again, a good bipartisan bill. Me and Mike Thompson are working on that. And we've just wasted three weeks around yeah. here. Uh, a chairman of Ways Means promised we would have a uh, a hearing in ways and means next week. And that was the week before Speaker McCarthy was taken down. So I hope we can get that back in action this coming week now that we're back in operation again. I'm trying to figure out who would be against this. I got to imagine this would not be, unless it's in some broader bill that's got a bunch of other stuff in it, Congressman, that this bill just stripped out that th this should not be a partisan issue. Fire and death and taxes on the compensation you are legally owed should not be on anybody's list of things that they should not want. Congress, Congress has always been pretty sympathetic to victims of disaster, you know, Hurricane Sandy and, and floods and other things like that. And this is a similar path. And so what it really comes down to is that there's House rules on does this cost the government money? Like, well, wait a minute. Government really doesn't have an, uh, wait, a, a wait, bearing in this Congress is, Suddenly Congress is worried about money? $33 trillion in debt? The, the, rules, the, the rules do indicate that this could be a cost to the government. But again, the government doesn't have a business between a fire victim and a settlement. It, this isn't like a normal income transaction on that. So that's what we're trying to change, 
change that status within IRS in order to have people not be victimized once again from what already happened. You know, yeah. so the utilities paid big money on this, and we also, when the federal government is looking how to make things better, the Forest Service needs to be doing a better job of making our lands not so vulnerable to a massive wildfire because the fire of this originated. Uh, 20 miles away and blew over several ridges to get here after high wind. Yeah. So we have to always remember that aspect, well, that's, too. So. That, that's, that's actually part of this longer-form piece that we're working on that'll come out in a couple of weeks. That's why we were there and learned of this. Congressman Lamalfa, thanks for joining us and educating Hope us speak on that. All right, thank be you. well. Thank you. All right, coming up. San Francisco's problems have been covered plenty on this show, but I finally had the chance to investigate the streets myself. And what I found may surprise you, maybe in a good way. It's after this. All right, let's wrap it up with the topic of San Francisco, because with everything that is being said and shown about the city, we kind of wanted to find out for ourselves. And the only way to find out is to find out. So we were out there working on that documentary, and I spent time on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday walking around town over the last couple of days. I hit the downtown area, some of the shopping districts, Union Square, City Hall, and even the tourist hub of Fisherman's Wharf. And what I found, mostly, wasn't great. Okay, so in Union Square, if you know San Francisco, I've been there a million times. There's a Saks Fifth Avenue pretty much right across the street from the park. That is about 3 o'clock on Sunday. I just walked in and snapped the picture. If you can find a customer, I can't. That is the Bloomingdale's in the Westfield Town Center Mall. That was about a half an hour later, maybe 3, 30, 4 o'clock on a Sunday. It's the same way. Actually saw a couple of customers there, but it seemed like there were far more employees than shoppers. Now, remember, that mall is in foreclosure and has a rather uncertain future. And that is me walking through the Westfield Town Center Mall. You can see there's a few people there, but as I narrate in the video and I posted it to X, there's, there's not enough people there to support the stores. Anyway, on Tuesday afternoon, I pretty much had the relatively famous Embarcadero Shopping Center to myself. I actually forgot a tie. I needed a tie. So I went down there, met a very nice guy who sold me a tie, but there's about three people there. And walking to the CNBC studios, which is right near the waterfront, I filmed this downtown. Again, I posted it out there. About 4 o'clock, and as you can see, it's a beautiful day. Not too many people walking around. No big 4 or 5 o'clock rush to the ferries to commute home. And there you go. All right. And there is a far more troubling side as well. In other areas of the city, up Market Street, near City Hall, near UN, there was a lot of homelessness and drug use. It was tough to see. I'm not going to show you plenty of other stuff going around, but it was, it was hard. A lot of people are suffering. But let's wrap it up by focusing on the positives in one of America's most original and important cities. There were a lot of places not open, but some of the well-known restaurants, which one of my favorites, the legendary Tadich Grill, that's my camera shot, was packed. And my hotel told me they were sold out. So let's hope that is the seeds of the beginning of a real recovery for San Francisco. But to do it, it's going to take you, people coming in and people coming back, and I think along with some real political will to want to change. We're rooting for you, San Francisco. All right. Before we go, it's been a very busy evening. Two big stories unfolding right now. If you're just catching up for the UAW, you may have reached the new deal. Still got to be voted on. There you go. That stock is higher. And Meta, their number's coming out. At first, the stock popped. Then it dropped. A lot of talk about AI as well. All these stories I'm sure will be covered starting at 5 a.m. on Worldwide Exchange. I'm off the next few days. See you Monday. Be well.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.